Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, the best of Risk number 23, you'll hear David Crabb. The hilarious thing about the alarm was that it sounded like a robot saying, porn, 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 porn. That and more. But before that, folks, don't forget that if you love what we do here at the podcast, please help us out. We need all the help we can get from our fans over at patreon.com slash risk. We're finally starting to tour the show to other cities again. We're starting to expand what we do in our audio editing department, uh, looking for different forms of storytelling to take on. We are working on another podcast behind the scenes, and we're still running our school, The Story Studio. It's quite a lot for a little indie operation like ours to be taking on, especially now that we're paying back this gargantuan government loan that we took out in 2020. And by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk, you'll have access to over 150 bonus stories, something like uh, 60 or more check-ins. And our patrons are really part of a community where we run stuff by patrons all the time, giving them little access to this or that, or checking in with our patrons to get their feedback on this or that. So if you've been waiting, if you've been holding out, don't wait any longer. Go to patreon.com slash risk. Or if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show.
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Gabor Zabo behind me now. And this is the best of Risk. Number 23, we had so many amazing stories this time around for our Best of compilation. We're going to have a Best of Risk 24 in not the next episode. We'll put a fresh episode of all new stories next week and then have the Best of Risk 24 the week after that. We're celebrating some of the best stories that have come down the pike in the past half year or so. It's really a testament to the hard work of the people behind the scenes that we have been able to keep the show so extraordinary while not being able to do many live shows at all for the past couple of years. I mean, we've we've had our New York show running for a little while now. The L.A. show is now back. And we're finally getting back to tour shows. But yeah, we had to really, you know, get innovative with with what we were doing here and kept the show extraordinary as these recent best of episodes show. Now, of course, the next two Risk Live shows are April 12th, 7 p.m. Pacific time at the Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles. April 21st, Risk is back in New York City at Caveat on the Lower East Side, 9.30 p.m. Eastern for that one. And in May, we're in Portland, Oregon on May 6th. That's the Portland show in Seattle, Washington on May 7th. You can get your tickets for any of those shows or the live streams of them at risk-show.com tour. And if you live in Seattle or Portland, there's still time to pitch us if you check out our submissions page, risk-show.com submissions. But let's get to these extraordinary stories today. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Sean David Christensen, a story that he shared on our Winter Holidays episode last December. We're also going to hear from Barb Poe, an unforgettable radio-style story she shared with us fairly recently. And just a heads up, there are incidences of abuse, uh, both physical and mental, in that story. And before that, one of our favorites, David Crabb who is not just the host and producer of our show out in L.A., but he's also a teacher of ours at the Story Studio. And, of course, you can find him at davidcrab.net. So without further ado, here is David Crab now with a story we call Porn, 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 Porn. So when I was uh, just graduating from high school and going to college, I worked at a place called Hastings Books, Music, and Video. Hastings was kind of like the borders of the South. I worked in the music department. Uh, I was in charge of end caps. Some of you might not know what a music store is. A music store had these displays at the end of the CD aisles where my handiwork would come in. I would, like, when the Janet Jackson album Janet came out, like, they would send the posters and the display, and then I would chop them up, and I would make posters, and then I would, like, cut up the posters and take the scissor like a ribbon on a Christmas present so I made Janet Jackson locks of hair that would cascade and then where Janet Jackson was holding her naked breast I would put two racks of the Janet CD extending like I won awards for it 
And if you can tell by that, I obviously was not in the closet during this time in my life in Texas. Uh, I was a gay person in San Marcos, Texas, uh, being my fabulous best. And I, uh, right when I started college, got a promotion to be the head of periodicals. I was the periodicals manager, which meant I was in charge of my favorite thing in the world as an 18-year-old man, magazines. I fucking loved magazines. As a closeted, fabulous teenager in San Antonio, Texas, I fell in love with GQ and Details and Andy Warhol's Interview Magazine, where I would smell the pages. I remember rubbing Details, like literally opening it and smearing it on my neck just because of all the cologne samples. So taking over magazines made me really fucking happy because I was like, that's where the culture is, magazines, and it's my world now, and I manage it. Now, the thing that I didn't realize was that a large part of my job would be about porno. A third to a half of the Hastings magazine racks were porn. You know what I'm talking about? They were in the green bags with like the window at the top. So you could see like Euro cream, but not like the picture of like the man sitting on a safety cone that was actually on the cover. And my job was for eight hours at a time and a stocking shift in the back room to take a literal cart, like the cart that used to be like three shelves on either side, tons of pornography and go through them all and bag them, but also put little silver stickers in each one that were designed to set off the alarm system should someone decide to steal porno. So it wasn't just bagging, it was going through pornography for hours at a time. Now, <laughs> as someone who was, had literally been an adult for a heartbeat, like, you, you're going to pay me to look at porn? <laughs> yeah, have, let's do it. However, there's a thing about porn, okay? I think porn for gay people is different as an adolescent experience than straight people. If you're straight, there's that thing where it's like, me and my other friends, we like hang out at John's house and we found his dad's stash and we all like sat around and looked at like his penthouses together. That's not what it's like when you're like a closeted gay 15-year-old, Okay. <laughs> You get porn, you covet it, it's private and dirty and wrong, and it's like a fairy tale of a way you might never be in the world. Do you know what I mean? There's not an aspirational thing where like you're with friends being like, those are boobs, I'm gonna touch them in like the next year. Yeah, high five. That's not the way it works. <laughs> you're alone, you're looking at an erection, and you're like, this is as close as I might ever get before I burn in hell for all eternity, right? That's what porn is like. And when you talk to other gay people that have had their sort of formative experiences with porn, there's a lot of secrets, there's a lot of shame. It wasn't online. Like, you had to go to a porno store and, like, rent a video, but you didn't want to rent it because you never wanted to return it, so you would spend $50 to buy a VHS copy, a blonde on blonde, or whatever the fuck, beach hunks, right? And then, I mean, I've actually talked to gay people. I've had gay friends who lived in the country who would, like, go buy porn, read it once, and then run into the woods and bury it. Like, I know someone that did that, like in the dead of night in a rainstorm. Like, that's not who I am. It's crazy, okay? And then you dig it up a few days later because you're like, I need a wank. So, like, porn's fucking weird. And it was strange being in the stock room in San Marcos, Texas, at Hastings, digging through all this porn, stickering that shit, like, next to, like, Jay and Jess, like, the two guys who love Stone Temple Pilots and are eating, like, Schlotzky sandwiches, right? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, brah erection, boob, like whatever, you know? Now, the other thing about porn is this, is it's exciting and thrilling to look at, regardless of age for some of you, especially when you're in adolescence and puberty, right? There's so much geriatric porn. I had no idea. I have seen so many pendulous breasts and white hairy balls. There's a lot of little people stuff, which is, I mean, fine. But again, it's a job all of a sudden. Do you know what I'm talking about? Now... 
I have these silver stickers that are security stickers, right? Now, I want to be really respectful of people's porn experiences, okay? So when I first started the job, I would find the little, like, subscription card that falls out of the magazine, and I would put the sticker on that. That's not invasive. You can buy your porn for $7.99. You can remove the card, and then you can look at jugs freely without being bothered, right? But I started to fucking, like, resent the job, and there was an anger that would come. I was like, I look at my card of porn, I'd be like, I'll be fucking tits and balls and clits. I don't want to do this today. So I started to abuse the porn with the stickers. Now, when I say that, what I mean is, like, I would be looking in Eurocream, and I would run the sticker, like, up the wax taint of a twink. Just leave it there. So when you were like, oh, you know, I folded the sticker so that it was strategically on a nipple on a different person so that when someone would go to open that part, it would tear the nipple off of either person. Because I hated the porn, and my logic was that, you know, I worked in a family store. Like, you know, porn was a part of it. It was like a family store. They had games and stuff. Like, there was not going to be a dad of three, like, returning a Barney DVD, being like, uh, also, I'd like to return this copy of Hancho. The nipples are terribly mutilated uh, on the, you know what I mean? So I was like, fuck you. You're going to live with this porn. So this was a few months into the job. And one day, I was in the back in the stockroom, and I heard the alarm go off. Now, the hilarious thing about the alarm was that it sounded like a robot saying, porn, 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 porn. And it wasn't always porn. Most of the time, like, if you were in the back and people were on their lunch break, it was exciting. It was like the alarm, because what was going to happen was the manager, which was probably going to be Neil. Neil was, like, the only Jewish guy in all of San Marcos, Texas, and I had a deep thing for, like, hunky, pale Jewish guys, because they were few and far between. I love Neil. Neil would bring back whoever it was and who knew it was going to be like a girl with a bra full of Tony Braxton cassettes or like a guy with pants full of M&M CDs you didn't know and, it, and then you were going to watch their whole exchange which was Neil being like you know I could call the police like it was a whole fucking thing right no one's going to call the police right you're just going to make the person feel shitty don't come to Hastings again bye bye and then when that person would leave we would all kind of laugh and Neil would feel like a man it was great so I hear the porn 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 I'm there with my fucking just cart of exploded labias and assholes stickering drinking a milkshake living my best life the the door opens and it's neil and behind neil is this like 14 year old hispanic boy he's in like a crumpled button-down blue shirt these like oversized dockers and he has hair that's so gelled it looks like it would like cut your finger if you touched it it's like so hard so stiff you know and he's already crying when they come back and neil looks at the kid and he's like take it take it out take out what you have. And the boy reaches in his pants and he takes out this rolled up green bag magazine. And he lays it on the counter and like the boy's crying and Neil's like, so who are you here with? Are you here alone? And the boy's like, no. He's like, who are you here with? And he's like, I'm here with my, my grandmother. And Neil says, well, I'm going to go get your grandmother because it's called the police because you're a minor and you stole from us or tell your grandmother. And the boy just like bursts into tears and Neil leaves to go get the grandmother. So I'm there alone in the stockroom with this boy who's like weeping, weeping, weeping. And I hear him behind me. I'm like stickering. And I'm trying to create a wall with my body between all my ball sacks and taints and things. Because I'm like, I don't want him to see, even though he just stole something, right? At first he's crying. And then it gets like really guttural. And then it gets like that. There's like prayers in the, like, <laughs> no, I don't even, like words are in there, right? Like, please help me, God. And I kind of want to turn and be like, look, it's porn, like, it's whatever, calm down. And as I turn around, the rolled-up magazine has fully unfurled to reveal the title, 
which is, and I swear this is a magazine that existed for a year, because I've seen all the pages of it, nine-inch males. And I look at it, and I look at the boy, and all of a sudden, the thing that he's been caught in totally transforms in my mind. As a gay person who was outed at 15 against my will by my guidance counselor, Cookie Shard, uh, who is a man, question mark. <laughs> I have a lot of strong feelings about this. It wasn't a choice for me. I was cornered in an office with my dad. He asked me some questions. Uh, they were a little invasive and I fucking broke. And it wasn't the way that I wanted it to be. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm looking at this kid and he looks up at me and I turn to him and I'm literally like holding the tools of his undoing. I have like my packing tape, you know, with the handle on it, roll of electric steel metal stickers. I have my green bags and just like a, a palace of pornography that I'm like preparing. And he looks up at me knowing this, that I'm the guy in the green Hastings apron who's put him here. And he looks up at me and he's crying and he just says, help me. And I'm like, oh fucking dude, <laughs> like what? And I don't know what to say. And right as I go to answer him, he freaks out he bursts into tears and he runs into the staff bathroom. The door is right behind him and he runs it and he shuts it and he locks it. And he locks the door. And I'm kind of having this panic. I'm knocking on the door and I'm saying, hey, you know, come out, it's going to be okay. And I'm trying to talk him out of there. And as he's in there, I'm thinking, like, I start to actually think my brain first goes to what's in the bathroom. There's Tylenol in there. There's a medical kit. Are there pills? I start to think about all the things. Because, you know, as a goth closeted teenager, I had my fair share of suicide fantasies. Do you know what I mean? I listened to a shitload of Susie and the Banshees, is what I'm saying. Uh, I was moody and misunderstood. I would have the suicide fantasy before I came out and no one understood me. Uh, it was all set to Sinead O'Connor. It involved me being in a bathtub full of white candles. My father would come in. I would have slit my wrist. Uh, my, he would have thrown up his cowboy hat and taken me out of the bathtub. It was a very, like, sort of platoon pieta tableau. He would have read a beautiful poem I wrote, screamed to the sky, you could have been a poet, and then it would have rained in the bathroom. And he would have understood me. And I wouldn't be there to get that gratification, but it was like that sort of like poetic goth, like they'll understand me when I'm gone. Like they're going to pay. But there were times, a few, when the sadness of being queer and feeling so dirty and wrong, there was nothing dramatic or cool about it. I always remember one night when I was like 16, I was in the bathroom in my mom's uh, house and I was uh, washing my hands. And there was no really big, fabulous story moment to the day. I didn't get called a faggot. I wasn't bullied. Nothing happened. It was just the exhaustion of thinking of the loneliness and where do I bury my porn and who will ever understand me. And I remember washing my hands and this faucet was running. I opened the little um, vanity and I just remember starting to look at pills, you know, in a very blank, non-romantic way and reading like, well, how many Tylenol do you take? How many of this? You know, and to the point that my mom knocked on the door at some point and was like, David, you've been in there 15 minutes with the water running. What's going on? And I, I just didn't, I had checked out. I was actually just sort of like in a really flat way contemplating like, what am I going to do about who I can't be? And I thought about that for the next few minutes when this kid was in the bathroom. And then finally, the door opened and Neil came in. And the grandmother that he brought back there, there could not have been a worse audience for what this boy was about to experience. She was like the older Hispanic grandmother from like a Guillermo del Toro horror film. She was wearing all black. She had a huge crucifix around her neck. There was a black hoodie with the hood pulled up. She was literally holding the fucking cross. She had a backpack on. I remember being so weird. You're like 82. Why do you have a black backpack? And she came and she was like, Jorge! Like it was high drama the moment she fucking came into the, like the room. And I was like blocking my tits and my boob, you know, like, ugh. She comes back there. The bathroom door opens, and this kid fucking comes out, and his face looks like a pincushion, covered in tears, red. He's so upset. And 
As he walks towards her, she looks down at the desk. She grabs the magazine. She looks at it and she gasps. And then she holds it up to her grandson and says, how could you be stealing Playboy magazine? And Jorge looks at what she's holding. He had been covering his eyes and he kind of moves his hands and he doesn't see Nine Inch Males, which had on it a very very hairy chested man dressed as an electrician on a power pole uh, with a hard hat holding his own erect pierced penis while he's like, like strapped on to like the, the, the utility pole. What he sees is a copy of Playboy magazine. There's a brunette, she's in a red negligee and she is balancing a single scoop of vanilla ice cream between her giant double D boobs and smiling. And as Jorge looks at this, he begins to grin. A huge grin. And I see it happening, and as I see it happening, grandmother says, why you laugh at Playboy magazine? And I'm looking at Jorge, and I want to be like, girl, you're giving away the game, honey. You have to reel it in. We gotta play. We're doing scene work here, girl. I fucking switched them out when you were in there, honey. You gotta just cry. You know, we have to, like, right... And I'm, like, really trying to, like, get him to, like, reel it back, and he doesn't fucking get it because he's so elated just the way that I would be if this was happening. And she freaks out so intensely. She grabs him by the shirt collar, which wasn't a thing I'd never seen anyone do to a child except on, like, a sitcom. Like, we're getting out of here. Grabs him. And I always remember as they walked out, two hilarious things. First things first, she looked at me and looked at my cart with all my bags and my boobs and porn and dicks and my sticker, and she looked at me and said, I'm so sorry he tried to steal your things. I don't want to be like, honey, I work here. Like, this is not like my private stash. Like, you know, I I thought it was so weird. I was like, "Ah, I just work here. And there was a little one of those diamond glass-shaped windows in the door with like the security buttons on it. And I always remember as it shut, looking and Jorge looking through the little diamond glass, just smiling, just eyes full of tears, just smiling at me like, thank you, sir. Just so happy, right? Um, As they... As they walked out, a few minutes later, I had to walk out because it was time to stock the porn. I got my cart. I went through the door. And I remember at one point, I was seeing um, Jorge's grandmother talk to this guy who was presumably his dad, a huge guy, tattoos, cut off t-shirt with like a farmer tan. I remember he had like a trucker cap, but he had fishing lures hooked into one side of it, like dangling in front of his eye. Like he fucking listened to a shitload of Tim McGraw. And I remember him looking at this guy, this kid that was presumably his son, Jorge, and patting him on the back, looking at him with this, like, little bit of pride. Like, I know what they say is school, but you love pussy. Like, that's, I swear, what was happening. And then I went through this crisis of conscience, like, oh, my God, maybe getting outed by fucking Cookie, that's the jam. Like, that's the way out. Like, that's, that's what's supposed to happen. And I started to feel so bad, thinking, oh, my God, for years from now, this dad has this justification. Jorge's going to come home, junior high school, and be like, guess what? They're letting a boy play Peter Pan this year in the school play, and I got the part. And his dad's just going to be like, he stole a Playboy. He stole a Playboy magazine. He stole a Playboy. And that's going to be fucking me. And, you know, I don't know what happened to Jorge. I feel good about saving him from that moment. However, I don't know where he is in the world now, but I hope wherever he is that he can go up to a magazine counter, a porno store, and I hope that he can put his credit card down and say, hello, my name's Jorge Gonzalez, and I would like to buy this copy of Nine Inch Males. (laughs) Thank you.
I'm 25 years old and I'm about to enter into the karate school where I've been a student for the past six years. I drove here with the master because I've been living with him for three months now. Hey, Barbara. Ma, I have some mail for you. The master says, go ahead. I'll meet you inside. And he disappears into the school. I walk over to my mother, who I haven't seen in three months. I just wanted to give you these letters, she said. I thought they might be important. And I stare down at the envelopes, and she slowly and methodically thumbs through them, one at a time, agonizingly slow. This one is from Citibank. And this one is from SUNY Stony Brook. And this one is from, and I'm transfixed. Mainly because I've been swallowing Valium around the clock for these past three months. A prescription that the master got for me from his own personal doctor who happens to be a student at the school. But not because I wanted them. I mean, the master just insisted I needed them. I hear men talking and laughing, and I look up, and there's these three guys walking briskly through the parking lot. And it looks like they're headed to the deli next door, cutting through the school's lot. And and look, my mother nudges me. Here's one that I don't know. Where, where do you think this came from, Barbara? I dopely look back down to the envelopes in her hands when suddenly I'm lifted off my feet and I'm staring up at the sky and moving away from the school. The three men carry me to a white van at the end of the parking lot. In the distance, I hear someone yell, holy shit. Then I hear my mother yell, you're okay, Barbara. I go limp and the men almost drop me because all of my training has kicked in. It's a highly tense situation. The master, who is a licensed hypnotist, trained us not to react with fear, but instead to control our physiological responses. He said this is the ultimate control of one's own body and mind. And we practice day after day, calming the mind while under enemy attack so that we only react to actual attempted assault and not to verbal threats. It's like a concerted effort to override the trigger to the flight or fight response mechanism. And I was good at it. Plus, I guess the mega doses of Valium probably had a hand in it too. Well, the back of the van opens and the men place me on the floor inside and the driver of the van yells, hurry up, he's got a gun. And the three men jump inside with me and slam the door shut. Now, I know the man with the gun is my master and in a second he's gonna jump into the back of the van and lay out these men like Bruce Lee style and I'll be saved. And this will just be a blip on our day and a story to tell the karate classes for many years to come. But instead, the men yell to the driver, Go, Diablo, go! And I hear two pops, gunshots. And we speed down the highway, far away from the karate school. 
one of the guys is holding his hand, which is bleeding profusely. I feel something bubbling up inside me. I've been laying almost perfectly still, but then a low guttural roar comes out from me. And I go berserk. I'm throwing kicks and punches and mostly just flailing around. Because fighting while on my back was never something we covered at the school, and I'm not very effective. It's more like the wrestling I used to do with my brothers when I was a kid. The men, they quickly overwhelm me. Throw me the duct tape, Sandman. A skinny guy with a red beard wraps my wrists together. A heavier guy with yellow curly hair wraps my ankles. You do know your parents sent us, Red says, which I suppose he says to make me feel safer, but it doesn't. Ever since I moved in with the master, my parents have been trying to convince me I'm in a cult. The master stopped allowing them access to me, as he put it. You fucking guys are dead. You don't know what you've done, I threaten. They sit with their backs against the side of the van and exchange glances like they've heard it all before. You criminals, you know that? And you, Sandman is applying pressure to his wound. You see, you deserve to bleed to death. But if you don't, he's going to find you and kill you. And then Sandman looks away from his bloody hand and stares right into my eye. Honey, he says, he's forgotten you already. I look away, and it's the first chink in my armor. And a tear rolls down my face because deep down, I think I know Sandman's right. After all, I only moved in with the master because his previous girlfriend of 15 years left him. And then one day later, I was in the master's office and he was telling me he wanted to train me to be an instructor, which meant I would now be part of the inner circle. And just like that, his girlfriend was forgotten and I was in. The curly haired guy caught me crying and he said, you may not believe this now, but you're going to be thanking us in a couple of days. All right, is she secure, Diablo says. He pulls into a sandy lot on a side road. The abductors snap into action. The doors fly open. They jump out. They drag me across the floor, and they transfer me to the back of another van. My mother and father, who are in their car, stick their heads in to the back of the van. Barbara, you're okay, don't be scared. How could you do this to me, I said. And I hear my brother's voice. Hi, Barb. Fuck you, you fucking traitor. You see, when I was 17, my brother started going to this karate school. He tried to get me to go every day for two years. Barb, this master is only one of 13 grandmasters in the world. He's unbelievable. After two years of constant badgering, I agreed to give it a try. I was 19 years old. Now, 
can't fast forward to when I moved in with the master and my parents begged my brother to read a book called Combating Cult Mind Control. They were convinced I was in a cult. And after reading it, my brother came to class and pulled me off to the side. Barb, we're in a cult. You have to leave with me, he said. I refused, and I went into the office and ratted him out to the master, who called in two of his henchmen. Bind him. But Robert, my brother, was long gone. And now, here he was. Fucking hate you, I said to him. I love you, Barb. Come on, we gotta go, Diablo says. And my family's gone, and it's just me and the four men again. Where are we going? I ask as the van starts up, and we start to drive away to a safe house. You can't deprogram someone who's not in a cult, assholes. We're not deprogrammers. We're our rescuers. You're criminals. Actually, the FBI is well aware of us. When something like this happens, they call our boss and ask if it's a rescue. And they're going to talk to you in a couple of days. Is that how long this is going to take? I say, days? There's silence. I roll onto my side and cry. I fall asleep, and when I open my eyes, the van is stopped, and I find out later that we've traveled from New York all the way to Pennsylvania, and Red is kneeling over me, and I'm just laying there, and he says to me, you know, we're in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing but woods for miles. There's over a foot of snow on the ground, and it's 20 degrees out. If I cut you loose... Will you walk into the house with us? I'm exhausted, and I have to use the bathroom, and so I nod my head. Red nods to Larry, who uses the scissors to cut the duct tape from my wrists and ankles. Come on, kid. I know, even though I'm 25, I still look and feel like I'm 19. The age I was when I first started at the school, and There's a reason for that. It's sort of an arrested development. Well, Red was not kidding. We are truly in the middle of a snow-covered nowhere. I want to run just to feel free. I haven't felt free in months, maybe years, maybe, maybe ever. And so I do. I run. And they don't even chase me because after a few steps, my legs can't even lift themselves up out of the deep, deep snow. And I collapse into the snow, and I'm crying again. I don't think I've cried in years. And now I've cried like three times in one day. Larry walks over to me, and he extends his hands out but I don't take them. I get up on my own and wipe my tears. My parents and my brother are inside the house waiting. Barbara, honey, it's, it's going to be okay, my mother says to me. No, Ma. No, it's not. And that night, I sleep in the corner of the bedroom floor they put me in, despite the fact that there's a bed in the room. 
I feel like a captured animal, so I act like one. Through the night, Sandman, Red, and Larry take turns sitting guard outside my door. The next day, I meet the deprogrammer. Hi, Barbara, I'm Joe. I curse at him and threaten him, which embarrasses my father, who yells from the living room, You better behave, young lady. Behave. Behave. You people are nuts, you know? I have a right to live my life the way I want. I'm an adult and you people kidnapped me. Hey, you know what? I'll come back when you're calmer and you're ready to talk. Joe leaves and I'm alone again. I look at Larry who's standing outside my door. and He shakes his head at me like I had screwed up. And I lay down on the bed and I just stare up at the ceiling and it becomes clear to me that there's only going to be one way out of here I have to talk to Joe the deprogrammer I have to tell him what he wants to hear that yup you're right I'm in a cult he'll tell my parents that he got through to me they'll take me home and then I'll go back to the master and sue each and every last one of them maybe worse so after a bit I say Hey, Larry, can you ask Joe to come back in? And they don't play any games. Joe comes right in, sits in a chair across from the bed, and I sit up. Joe is mild-mannered. He's an easygoing guy, and he seems kind of artsy, and uh, to me, he looks Native American. And I like Native Americans. When I was a kid, I used to escape the abuse and the arguments in my house and go to the woods and pretend I was an Indian girl running and hiding from the white men. I liked feeling like I was apart from the rest of the world. I mean, I always felt that way anyway. A child forgotten. Sometimes my parents would argue so badly and Their fights would get violent, and sometimes the police would show up at my house. And I always wished that the officers would take me away with them. But they never did. They just left me there time and time again with my very mentally ill mother and my angry father. Well, anyway... I like Joe, despite our situation. So, Joe, I say to him, you think I'm in a cult, huh? I do, he says. After talking to your parents and your brother, I I do believe you're in a cult. But I want to hear what you have to say. So I'll give you the information that I have about cults, and you can ask me whatever questions you want, and you could share anything you want to, and then you'll decide for yourself. And then there's this part of me that's hesitant. There's a part of me that's afraid to find out if I'm in a cult. Because then what? Back to living with my parents? I mean, all I ever wanted was to get away from them. I dreamed of going away to college ever since I knew what college was. Then when I was a senior in high school, my parents told me I couldn't go to college. They wouldn't pay for me to go away to school. In fact, Why did I even need college at all? Find a man to take care of you, they said. I guess being the mistress of a 55-year-old karate grandmaster living with him and his wife 
wasn't what they had in mind. So you think I'm brainwashed, Joe? Well, cults use mind control, he started to explain. He said, mind control is a system of influences that disrupts an individual's identity. Like your beliefs or your behaviors, your thinking, even your emotions. And it replaces your own identity with a new identity, one that serves the cult, and in this case, the master. So I think of who I was when I was 19 and what I wanted then. Honestly, I hadn't even begun to discover my identity on my own, apart from my family. I think of the path I walked these past six years. Joe gave me words to the experiences that I described to him. My brother told me about the school and the Grandmaster. Ah, it was your brother who recruited you. I guess I say. From the first time I walked in, I tell Joe I, I felt part of a family. It was like a warm hug. That's called love bombing, Joe says. The long-term members make the new recruits feel welcome and special. I think back to myself at 19, and I did feel special. I mean, I was the youngest woman in the school, and though I couldn't take classes with the master because he had to be advanced for that, the sensei that taught the beginner and the intermediate classes sure did take a liking to me. He'd invite me to stay after class and have coffee with him and some of the other students. And Sensei would impart his wisdom to us. And we sat at his feet like he was Socrates. He said we were like ashtrays. And he had to clean us out in order to make us an empty vessel to then fill with clear water. Ah, that's the process of unfreezing, changing, and refreezing. You know, Joe's got an epithet for everything. So the school's ideology was, um, like, Eastern-leaning, for sure. But since I never gave credit to Zen Buddhism or Taoism, he acted as if these tenets, which he probably got from reading the Tao of Pooh, were his own ideas. And because I was unworldly and gullible and enamored with him, I believed he was a genius. <laughs> and Sensei never failed to talk up the master. You know, he uh, talked about him with the same reverence that believers talk about God. And Sensei would be, had been studying with the master for, for decades. So he was like a loyal servant. And we were all elevated by the fact that we studied with this master. Ah, oh, well, that's elitist mentality, Joe says. <laughs> and how about outsiders, people not in the group, he asks me. Well, of course, anyone outside the group was inferior. And at first it started as like just us being our school and our way of self-defense versus other schools that taught like katas, which were according to the sensei, choreographed dances. Then us was us members versus anyone like not in the school, including my friends, my family. So 
So after a time, I dropped all my friends. And Joe explains this us versus them thinking to me. You know, it's important that cults separate you from anyone who might give you information that is in conflict with their claims. So cults require unquestioning devotees, he said. You know, they, they want you to be all in. Well, I was. Not at first. When I first started, I only took one class a week. But over time, it became two classes a day, every day. And my devotion did not go unnoticed. And so, when the master's girlfriend of uh, 15 years left the school and we were all warned not to have any contact with her, I was invited to take classes with the master in order to become an instructor, he said. Uh, This was like being invited by God to sit at his table. And then all the men that I had seen around the school for years that were unapproachable because of their stature were now giving me the same respect that they gave the master. And finally, I felt extraordinary and powerful, and even the master's abuse felt like necessary lessons to strengthen my resolve. Like when he broke my arm during class, and then he hypnotized my pain away. It wasn't until hours later that he took me to a doctor who took an x-ray and showed me where it was fractured in two places. And at times the master drugged me, and he raped me, and he never let me out of his sight. I had no car. I had no way to get away. So, I guess I was apart from the world, just like I wanted to be. Well, it's the middle of day three of my deprogramming, and I feel overwhelmed with all this new information. I feel woozy, like I'm on a -a tilt-a-whirl ride that won't stop. And all the beliefs of the past six years suddenly shift. And I lean over the bed and I vomit. Now they call it snapping when your original personality comes back. And yes, sometimes it's as sudden and as obvious as that. And I feel like the world has flipped right side up again. And all the black and white us versus them thinking has fractured and just dissolved before my eyes. And Joe looks at me and he says, welcome back, Barbara. It's nice to meet you. And now you have some decisions to make. You see, they weren't honest about what they were doing to you. But now that your eyes are wide open, you can make the decision for yourself. I mean, as far as cult status goes, just as, you know, being the leader's girlfriend is a prestigious title to hold. It's one way to spend a life. Is that the way you want to spend your life? And I don't answer. I wasn't 
thinking about the master. I wasn't thinking about the school at all. I wasn't even thinking about my future. I was thinking about my parents, who were just in the other room. I thought about how they screwed up my life. That's what parents do more often than not. But then sometimes some outrageous act of heroism. They may try to save you. And if you're feeling magnanimous, you'll let them. I'm 10 years old and I'm sitting in the dugout of the um, baseball diamond at my middle school. It's P.E. and I'm trapped. Not only by a uh, section of chain link fence that surrounds me, but also by a, a half circle of laughing sixth graders. And I've been here before. I'm very familiar with this. I know I'm stuck and the only way to get out is to give them exactly what they want for me to say Chuck E. Cheese. Just that, just the name Chuck E. Cheese. Now you, you may be asking yourself, Sean, buddy, just say Chuck E. Cheese. It's just a name, right? For me, when I was that young, just a name was more than just a name. Words were more than words. The act of speech was incredibly difficult for me. I had a, a host of speech impediments, a stutter, which means I got like stuck on a word, like a playing card in the spoke of a bicycle wheel. Uh, I had a stammer, which was kind of like I couldn't force a letter out of my throat. It would get kind of stuck like a car flooding an engine. And I had what I later came to know in my adult life as phonetic disorders. A certain combination of letters creates an unnatural shape or sound. So my CHs sounded like and my S's uh, were th. My tongue just whistled past my teeth, and I couldn't really connect my, my mouth. It was really a, a physical impediment that I didn't, I didn't have a name for. All I knew was the embarrassment it caused whenever I tried to speak, which was rarely. This was a, a private shame that I kept as a child for years. So, <laughs> I'm back in the dugout, right? So now you can imagine <laughs> the gales of laughter the hilarity caused by a name like Chuck E. Cheese, which was the kiss of death for me, right? It's got two CHs and a string of S's at the end. I was doomed. But this was their most favorite pastime. And I think I kind of adopted being kind of like a class clown to them, albeit a dysfunctional one. And I think they got a lot more enjoyment out of pulling my string like I was a wind-up toy, but they were more amused by pulling the string on a broken toy and washing it sputter out, more delighted in what it couldn't do than what it could. Funny, right? So I said it, hoping they'd let me go, 
But all that meant was now they knew how easy it was to get some quick amusement. So they asked me again and again. And that's kind of what school was like for me when I was in the sixth grade. You know, I, I tried to get along the best I could by being nice, but that only went so far. And this was kind of like I, I lived within this. It was kind of like navigating a maze, you know. I learned to avoid certain situations, to not put myself out there for certain things, to kind of hold back, because that was my way to escape. And I couldn't wait to get home like most kids. You know, you go home and you play. For me, I created these private worlds that I lost myself in, you know, whether it was singing to myself or writing a song or my favorite pastime, making little comic books. And I would draw speech bubbles with dialogue inside of it. And I would whisper to myself in a voice that I wish I could hear out loud, you know, a voice that was unbroken and uninhibited by this painful maze of speech that I was trapped in. But the weekends were the best. Because on the weekends, I got to sing. And when I was 10 years old, I was a member of the Phoenix Boys Choir. Not to, you know, pat myself on the back here as a 37-year-old man. But as a 10-year-old, I was a member of a world-renowned boy choir. And we had um, just an exceptional choir master, Dr. Jones. And every Saturday, we would gather in a, in a little practice room with some squeaky black plastic chairs and a tile-drop ceiling and a stand-up piano in the corner there was like 30 boys all packed in there. I, I loved those Saturday mornings because I felt, I felt normal. I felt like I belonged, and these were my friends. And that time of year was really special. This was around early October when we were starting to gear up for practicing for our Christmas concerts, which would come months later, but we got to get ready now because you know we were singing some challenging material. Benjamin Britten was one of the composers I loved to sing. You know, these really complex cathedrals of sound, these majestic choral works, you know, and we were practicing all of that together because Christmas time was a very special time for the choir. We usually did this, um, there was a Christmas skit that was attached to our Christmas concerts. So we, we would sing these carols and cantatas and there was a, a through line through it all. And it was the story of the three wise men going to see baby Jesus. And every year they would choose three boys from the choir to be the three wise men. It's a speaking role, so you can imagine uh, Sean wasn't picked for this one. <laughs> but we would practice our songs, and then we'd take a break, and then the three wise men would, would read their lines from their chairs. And I would just be sitting there listening and thinking to myself, I want that. That must be so cool to be a wise man, to have a role, to have something to say. I really wanted that for myself. I think more though, beyond me just being an insufferable theater kid, I think I, at that age, I really wanted to be heard more than anything. I wanted people to understand me. So I would listen to these, these three wise men and thinking, you know, one day I will be wise. You know, one day I will get past this. I'll grow out of it. But Monday would come and I would find myself back in the classroom and, you know, you're in, you're in class. Did you ever have to read aloud from the book? You all get your books out and then you go desk by desk, row by row. It's like, okay, turn to page four and you take turns with the paragraphs reading. Oh God, I hated that. I would be counting the desks before it was my turn. And uh, when, when it would get to my desk and I would have a big paragraph in front of me, I remember this one time when uh, I just, my throat 
locked up, I couldn't get past the first, literally the first word. My, my stammering became even worse when I felt anxious. All it would take was just a couple of giggles floating behind my back. My cheeks would get hot. And I would think how foolish of a dream that is to believe that any day I'd be wise. What a, what a foolish thing to dream for, you know? I kind of learned to stuff that dream deeper and forget about it or pretend it wasn't there. Until one day my mom picked me up from school, as she usually did. And that day was kind of different because she was driving a bit slower. I could sense that something was on her mind. We drove past a pumpkin patch set up outside a grocery store and some hay was thrown down in the parking lot. And I'm kind of looking out the window and my mom stops at a stoplight and she kind of rests her hands on the wheel and she turns to me and says, So, um, some of your teachers have asked me if you would be interested in going to see a speech therapist. Do you know what that is, Sean? I said no. In the back of my mind, I'm like, is that like a doctor? Don't you go see a doctor when you're sick? I'm not sick. And then, like, I was imagining, like, are they going to, like, announce it over, like, the loudspeaker in the classroom? Like, attention, Sean, come to the doctor's office. It's time to see the speech therapist. She kind of um, rubbed her hands on the steering wheel, and she said, because... You know, I want this to be something that you choose to do. That's important. You know, I'm looking at that stoplight, and the car is kind of idling right there in the road, and I'm just looking at that dry hay on the floor of the parking lot. And all I can think of is the dry grass that's in the dugout. And I really thought about that, you know, choice. I think I got so used to being stuck whether I was stuck behind a problem letter of a word I couldn't force out of my mouth or stuck behind that chain-link fence in that dugout, but I don't want to go to a therapist. I remember distinctly sharply turning to her my left and just saying, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to figure this out. And when the light turned green, we kept on driving. And Saturday comes... And with it, I have this feeling of like, now is the time to step into this new, this new way forward. And that's when I walked right up to Dr. Jones. He was putting his music in his briefcase, getting ready to go home. I kind of say, you know, in a little voice, Dr. Jones? He turns around. I want to be the understudy in the Christmas play. You ever see that in someone's face when, like, their eyes smile, but their face doesn't quite catch up? I could see his eyes kind of wrinkle behind his glasses, and he looks down at me as if to wonder, um, yeah, uh, yeah, I didn't know we were doing a long day's journey into night. So Dr. Jones looks down at me, and he, and he asks, okay, Sean, um, what, what role were you, uh, thinking of doing? And I look up to him, and I said, uh, All of them. I want to be the understudy for all the three wise men. His eyes kind of smile, and there's like kind of a wrinkle in the corner of his face, and he says, I'll be right back. So he goes downstairs, and he he photocopies the script. And when he hands it to me, I can feel the weight of it. And this thing, this thing's heavy. It's got to be at least 
five pages. <laughs> I'm flipping through it, and I'm sitting on the curb outside the building where my dad would come pick me up. And I'm flipping through the script. I'm like, oh, Sean, what if... <laughs> What have you gotten yourself into? Like, I'm looking at all these words like angel. There's that NG, angel. I can hear in my head, that's what you're going to sound like, Sean. You're going to get up on stage and you're going to be a fool. And I'm looking at angel and camels and sheep. It's gotten so much, I'm thinking, oh no, I've, I've made a huge mistake. My dad picks me up and he looks at me and he's like, what do you got there? Well, this is... This is the script. I'm going to be the understudy for all three wise men. My dad smiles and he says, well, we better get practicing. You know, the, the concert's coming up. And he was right. You know, by then it was early November, you know, and I'm kind of counting down the days to our first Christmas concert, which was usually like December 1st. So I got this script and it's at home. And whereas before I'd come home and I'd draw some cartoons or sing a song, I come home and I'm, I'm ready to practice. I want to make sure I know the lines. And so I got into this habit of like my dad and I, we would run lines together and I would sit next to him in his bed like we were roommates in a Neil Simon play. And he would be my scene partner, right? And I would go through the script and every time I would get stuck on a word where like that's that stutter I talked about, remember? You know, I'd get... It's that, that fluttering, those nerves. He would softly say, it's okay. Just sound it out. Just sound it out. And I would, you know, sitting next to him, I'd sound it out. And at school, I'd be standing in line for, like, lunch, you know. And I, in my mind, I'd be repeating the lines to myself. At kickball, I'd be way out in left field because... The teacher was smart enough to know where to put me to be most valuable, right? So I'd be way out in left field, daydreaming and repeating these lines in my head, just getting ready. And as the air got cooler, this feeling came upon me of like, what if you practice all these lines and you never get to go up on stage? And our first Christmas concert happens, you know, it's December 1. And I'm, I'm back in the choir. I'm looking out. And I see the three wise men, you know, and they got their little outfits on and their fake uh, beards made of, like, <laughs> painted cotton balls. And, you know, there's a fake, like, wooden camel cut out. And I'm, they're, they're doing their lines, and I'm kind of, like, repeating them under my breath <laughs> back there in the choir. And I'm like, well, at least you're ready, you know, at least, at least you tried. But then about a week goes by. And the air gets cooler, and one of those boys catches a cold. And it was wise man number three. Now, wise man number three, he didn't have the most lines in the script, right? But he had the most important one. And that was a cue line, directing the choir, now is your time to sing. And the line was, and look, up in the rafters and thousands of angels are singing. So right there, I'm in trouble. Angel. But I'm wise man number three. I mean, it's time for me to step up to the plate. So I'm backstage. It's the night of the show. 
and I'm getting dressed in this robe, and now I'm putting on the fake beard, and I'm scratching my face underneath it because it's really kind of itchy, and I'm just like, I've made a, <laughs> I've made a huge mistake, and now it's too late because I've grown facial hair, and now I am a wise man, and so I'm kind of like wedged backstage at the church where they keep the sacramental wine and. I can see it in the cupboard, and we're all kind of shoulder to shoulder backstage, and we start to file out. And you know, I was so used to like following the choir and walking up on the risers behind me, but this time, I got to like walk out on stage with the two other wise men. And one of them kind of smiled at me behind his beard, like, "You ready? This is going to be fun." <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, maybe fun for you. I got some doubts." And so we're kind of shuffling out, and the lights are hot. I can't see anybody out in the audience, but I know that my parents are there, my sister's there. I know that they're there watching me. And we're shuffling through, and I'm pretending to like look off in the distance at the desert surrounding me. You know, I'm doing some pantomiming. Already at that age, I was a huge ham, and uh, you know, we're we're kind of getting through it. And like, just like I would count the desks before it was my turn to speak. I'm counting the lines before it's my turn to speak, and I got to give that cue line. All I can see is darkness, but I can hear the people breathing and they're and they're waiting. And the choir's waiting, and I know that my line is next. And so, when it comes, I close my eyes and I say the line. And look, and up in the rafters, I can hear my voice. Thousands of angels are singing. I I hear it for the first time. For the first time, I hear myself, and it's echoing in the church. And I, I'm like, I I wanted this for so many years. <laughs> More than anything, I wanted this. I wanted to be heard. I don't know if any of you have felt that before, where you finally get that thing you've always wanted. I hope it happens for you, because it happened for me when I was just a kid. And I heard my voice, and the choir starts singing, and the sound of the music they made almost sounded like the sound of somebody saying, "It's gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay." It got colder that December in Phoenix, and as the temperature dropped, so too did more wise men. And wouldn't you know it? Because I memorized all the lines, I ended up playing every single wise man. I was wise man number two one night, and then a couple days later, I'm wise man number one with all the lines, just hogging the stage. I mean, I was so. After that point, when I finally knew that I could do what I always believed I could, I would have played every role on the stage. I even would have played the fake wooden camel if they let me. I would have played hay. I would have played sand. I would have played baby Jesus with zero lines. I would have done anything because it's that feeling of I can do this. Looking back on that, at no point. In between Dr. Jones handing me the script 
Me learning the lines and literally putting on the fake beard. Not once did Dr. Jones check up on me to see if I was doing okay or if I knew the lines. I would like to believe that he trusted me, that somehow he knew Sean's got this. And I never forgot Dr. Jones just trusting me. You know, I'm, I'm a lot older now. I, I still have trouble trusting myself. I don't know if you've noticed, but you know, this entire time I've been telling you the story, at every turn I'm conscious of that maze. I still feel like I'm in that maze. I have to watch my letters. I have these trouble letters, P's and T's and S's. They trip me up sometimes. And every day is a new stage. Every time I leave my apartment, I feel like I'm getting dressed as a wise man. I'm going out there and I got to perform. And I hope that people don't notice. And every time I feel doubt or worry, which is a lot, I like to imagine that backstage, there is little Sean. And he's there with me. I'd like to believe that he's back there. And when he looks up at me, he says... You're not broken. You never were. But I'm sorry you still feel that way. You shouldn't have to, Sean. As a storyteller, I often wonder, like, what am I really giving, you know? It's just a story. It's just me telling my feelings, and maybe... Maybe that's what it is, you know? Maybe what I can give is just the voice of somebody who's been there. And if you're there, if you're doubting yourself if you need a little Sean backstage you know I'm there too I think that's where it all started me pointing up at the rafters and believing there were angels up there looking after me (laughs) because I really could have needed an angel back then maybe they maybe they were always there you know maybe that's all what this voice is to you right now it's a voice backstage saying hey it's okay. I'm looking out for you.
This is Risk. This is Madonna behind me now. And we just heard from Sean David Christensen, who you can find at Sean David Christensen on Instagram. And while you're on the interwebs, why not go to thestorystudio.org? The Story Studio is the other half of our business. We teach storytelling for performance, storytelling for business, storytelling for personal growth. We also do custom-tailored corporate workshops. So many of the people who do the story coaching for Risk are faculty members over there. And we have different kinds of offerings. We have online workshops you can take, video workshops that you can watch and you know learn at your own pace in your own time. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our final story on this week's episode comes to us from one of our very favorites, Oz de Soleil, and there's incidences of violence mentioned in that story. But before that, we're going to hear something super fun that was recorded at a risk slash body storytelling show years ago in San Francisco 
our good friends over at Body Storytelling, a show hosted by Dixie De La Tour. It's one of our favorite storytelling shows in the world, and we have sometimes collaborated with them, you know, co-hosted shows together. And this one comes from one of those shows. This is Alice Page now with a story we call Call Your Mother. San Francisco about two years ago and very quickly realized that this is a very difficult city to survive in and that I needed a job that would pay a lot for relatively few hours of work. (laughs) I moved here for graduate school. So sex work seemed like a viable option. But I, however, had no desire to have sex with people for money or even not for money, although I did feel it was time to put these puppies to work. So a friend of mine suggested that I combine my love for misery with my desperate need for money into one profession, becoming a dominatrix. say I was intrigued getting to yell at men for a living and those fabulous heels they wear. So the same friend found me a job opening at a BDSM co-op in Berkeley, (laughs) of course, where else? And I promptly submitted an application with all the necessary requirements. Two full body-length photos, a description of why I wanted to do this job. I want to kick men in the balls for a living, okay? I learned at the Folsom Street Fair that this is extremely fun. (laughs) And my available times. I received an automatic response informing me that... They had received hundreds of applications, and if they wanted me, they would contact me. So in the meantime, I decided to do some research on what exactly a BDSM co-op would entail. See, I'm originally from Washington, D.C., so I understood power play, but not quite the nuances of BDSM or how this would work in a co-op situation. Aren't co-ops for fresh vegetables, not whips? And would there be communal chores? Like, would taking out the trash take on a whole new meaning? Would I be punished if I didn't fulfill my duties? But the co-op at least provided all the gear and the training. So I began to imagine what exactly the training would involve. Proper spanking techniques, uh, safe words, appropriate levels of verbal abuse. I had never read Fifty Shades of Grey. Would this be required reading or absolutely not? (laughs) The email also informed me that I must be available twice a week from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. 10 a.m.? Really 10 a.m.? I am not a morning person, so I'm barely just beginning to function by that time. But 
I had no idea that people were getting their kink on at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. That is dedication. My morning routine usually consists of brushing my teeth, getting dressed, maybe if I'm lucky, shoving some food down my throat, hopefully getting myself to work or school on time. I had never considered eating my eggs with a side of corporal discipline. And meanwhile, I was able to find the co-op website online and quickly discovered that I would in no way fit in here. All the women were 1950s, pin-up, glamorous, gorgeous, seductive, unique, kind of like Dixie here. Or like Betty. Meet Betty with an E. Betty engages in anal play, erotic role play, water play, switch play, Sissy play. I had never heard of most of this play. I didn't know what it would involve, but I did think that it kind of sounded like the most fun I'd have since my recess days had ended. So, lo and behold, a few days later, I received an email, a response email, asking me if A, I had any visible tattoos. No, we're good there, I'm Jewish. And B, if I would be interested in scheduling a phone interview. And just a few days after that, I was on the phone with a British woman who described herself as the headmistress. I'm sorry, my accent is so bad. Who promptly began yelling at me for everything I said or didn't say. Now, I'm terrified of confrontation. Yeah, I know this seems completely contradictory to becoming a dominatrix, but just hear me out. I've had breakups that have lasted for years because I'm too afraid to confront the fact that I no longer want to be in the relationship and tell them that I need out. I have conversations with people on the bus that I miss my stop for because I can't stand to tell them that I can't listen to their life story anymore. But since moving to San Francisco and living in the damn Tender Knob area, where I have seen more shit, literally and figuratively, than I ever care to admit, I've had to toughen up. But before I was a huge softie. So as this British headmistress snarls at me on the phone, I suddenly realize this is probably part of the test. She's trying to see how I'll react as a future dominatrix. She's breaking me in. So I suddenly shriek at her, I can't take this anymore. You can't talk to me like this. I won't stand for this type of behavior. I am shocked by my own outbursts, but I like it. I really, really like it. And apparently, so does she. Suddenly, she becomes silent, and then she says, we've been looking for someone just like you. We need someone to fill the bubbly blonde niche. Our clients are sick of the overly tattooed suicide girls. As she continues to rattle on about the co-op pay structure, I begin to wonder, bubbly blonde niche? I had no idea this was a thing in the dominatrix world. It seemed like an oxymoron. Bubbly blonde, dominatrix. ka <laughs> But I am not a bubbly blonde. I'm a fake blonde Jewess who... 
A complete stranger once described very accurately, I should say, as a foxy curmudgeon. (laughs) And I have not yet since heard a better description of my personality. So I had to imagine other niches that I could fill. Awkward teenager? I know I look young for my age, but I in no way wanted to live out that not-so-distant past reality. And what could I do with this voice? How would I ever intimidate anyone when I sound like, get down on your knees and beg for it! I said, lick my boot! (laughs) It's a voice that only dogs can hear? Clients would probably laugh and walk away from. And then it came to me. Nasally voice, childbearing hips, no tattoos, Jewish mother dominatrix. the world needs this. So many Jewish mommy issues, it's obscene. I mean, imagine a schmuck like Mark Zuckerberg works in, who every day has to run this juggernaut of a company, who every day has to boss people around, and now it's his turn to be brought to his knees. And he begs to be dressed up like a baby and spanked for breaking with tradition and marrying a non-Jewish shiksa. I mean, imagine the guilt. Now I'll never have Jewish grandchildren. Where's your yarmulke? I'm going to drip candle wax from the menorah on you eight times. Or a nebbishy Woody Allen type who is feeling guilty for no longer keeping kosher. I would put on my babushka and let him have it. Eat your matzo balls now! Here, have another one. I said eat it! I don't care if you're hungry or not. Chicken soup is a Jewish penicillin! (laughs) My mother would be so proud of me right now. I'm lost in this reverie in the midst of my phone interview with the British headmistress when I find out that my schedule as a graduate student directly conflicts with their needs for me as a dominatrix and I am promptly shut out. But I still carry with me this Jewish mother dominatrix persona and have felt validated in my ability to simultaneously stand up to and annoy the shit out of the likes of bad boyfriends and catcallers alike. And if my career in a think tank doesn't work out, I think I found my other calling that the world truly needs. Thank you. Eat your matzo 
the balls now! Here! I said eat it! Have another one! I don't care if you're hungry or not! Chicken soup is the Jewish penicillin! I am so disappointed in you! You're never right! You're never cool! You're not a lawyer or a doctor! When are you going to give me grandchildren? Where's your yarmulke? I'm gonna drip candle wax from the menorah on you eight times! <laughs> Nineteen eighty-three. I'm nineteen years old. I've got my boombox, and I am standing on a corner in Waukegan, Illinois, waiting for a bus. And I'm gonna go downtown Waukegan, transfer to another bus, and then head out to a mall. I'm just having a nice, chill day. And Waukegan is this small town of sixty-eight thousand people, and it's about fifty miles north of Chicago. And here comes the bus, the 568. I get on it and it is crowded. There's some seats near the back. So I'm walking back, 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 and there are people behind me that had gotten on the bus. And in the back of the bus, those seats, there's about five, six seats that face forward. In one of those seats, there's this skinny guy in a jerry curl with a suit jacket on. And as I get closer and closer, his eyes are getting bigger and bigger. And then he starts smiling. And he says, hey, man, I ain't seen you in so long. I don't think he's talking to me because I don't recognize him. He's got to be talking to somebody behind me. So I turn and look. And in the bus aisle right behind me, there's this huge bald guy, like maybe six foot four, a whole foot taller than me. And he looks down at me. You talking to you, brother? I turn back and look at the guy with the jerry curl. Hey, man, how you doing? I said, I'm all right. And I sit down in one of the seats next to him, one of those seats that faces inward toward the aisle. I'm sitting there and the guy says, man, I, 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 your mother, your mother's name, I, I can't remember. Mary, Mary, how's Mary doing, man? She was always so nice to me and it's so glad to see you. How's Mary doing? Mary's all right. She's all right. She's, uh, she, I think she's at home right now, but yeah, she's good. And how you doing, man? How, I, what, what was your name again? Oz. Oz. Oh, man, how do I forget that? How you doing? Well, I'm just uh, going out to the mall, taking classes at the College of Lake County. You know, not a whole lot. Oh, man, you're going to college. That's good. That's good. The conversation dies down, and I'm thinking... I don't recognize this guy, but this area is one of those small areas where people know each other in the most direct or indirect ways. My mother and I could be at a grocery store and there'll be some random woman. Hey, and she calls us by name. And then my mother has to tell me later, oh, she used to live upstairs from your uncle a few years ago over on 22nd Street. Okay, well, I'm glad I didn't say, who the hell are you? But here I am right now on the bus going to the mall. But then this skinny guy taps his knee against my knee. 
I look up at him and he gestures and he says, watch this, watch this. And he pivots toward that big bald guy who was now sitting next to this guy with the jerry curl. And the guy with the jerry curl pulls a magazine out of his jacket, puts it on his lap, pulls out three cards, and he shuffles the cards around. Three card money, I've seen this before. If you don't know, three card money, it's three playing cards. One of them is typically a red queen, and the other two are black cards, a, a spade or a clubs. And the idea is the player puts up some money and the cards get shuffled and the player is supposed to keep their eye on where they think that red card is, even with the dealer shuffling really fast. Because once the shuffling stops, the player is supposed to point to where they believe that red queen is. It's also a hustle. I've been told not to play this game. And so this big bald guy, he said, yeah, man, yeah, man, I want to play. I want to play. And he pulls out $5. And the guy with the jerry curl and the cards, he shuffled the cards, boom, boom, boom. And then the bald guy points the middle card, flip it over, black card. The guy says, damn. And then the guy with the cards, he looks towards me. I said, this brother knows where it is. I said, yeah, I know where it is. It's over on the other end. Flip it over, boom, yep. That was the Red Queen. So the guy says, hey, you want you want some of this? I said, no, 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 no. I've seen this on TV. And not only TV, but I had been warned about when I would be going to Chicago. I had seen stories, you know, about New York City, people in parks and on sidewalks. But they approach with, hey, you want to win some money. It's already kind of this adversarial thing. Win, lose, win, lose. But this guy is in the back of a bus in Waukegan, Illinois. Sometimes these guys on TV, they would have rhymes. You know, while they're shuffling, they would say, find the honey, win some money. You pick black, too bad for you, Jack. This guy had no rhymes. So maybe he sucks at this. Maybe he thinks he's better than he really is at hustling people. But I decide it's best for me to just leave this alone. But the guy says, okay, okay, I'm gonna give you one for free. Shuffle the cards, boom, boom, boom. I point, flip it over, red queen. I would have won some. He says, come on, man, let's do it for real. And he pulls out this wad of money that he couldn't even get his fingers around. It was in a big roll. Ooh, wow. And he says, come on, man, put up the boom box and I'm putting up all I got and we'll do this one for real. I said, no, no, no. Now see, my boom box cost me $300 in 1983. I had that thing on layaway forever and it had the dual cassettes, high gloss silver finish on it. It was beautiful. I was not putting that up. He said, all right, man, let me give you another free one. I said, okay. He shuffled the cards, boom, boom, boom. I point, flip it over, red queen. And now I'm starting to think, Waukegan, small town, city bus. I've won two, maybe I'll play. Mm but I'm not putting up the radio. 
and the bald guy, he jumps in and says, hey, can me and this brother put our money together? Yeah, y'all can put your money together. I say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, put our money together. No, I'm not putting our money together. And the guy with the card says, all right, you want to put up all you got? I'm putting up all I got. I said, no, I'm not putting up the radio. He says, how about the watch? Oh, the watch that I paid $25 for just three days ago against that big wad of money. And I've won two already, but I know not to play this game. <sighs> okay. All right. I'm putting up the watch. All right, brother. Here we go. Shuffle the cards around, boom, boom, boom. I point, flip over, black card, damn. So now I reach to take off my watch and I'm convinced this guy does not know my mother and I am into something that I never should have gotten into. But I want my watch back. And the guy with the cards, he says, all right, now, let's play for the radio, all right? I said, no, I'm not playing for the radio. The bald guy, hey, can we put our money together? I'm not putting my money together with you. So we get to downtown Waukegan, and this is where we're going to transfer buses. I need to get off the bus so I can walk across to another block and get on another bus. And Waukegan is the kind of place where all of the buses come into downtown at the top of the hour and everybody gets about 15 minutes to walk and transfer buses and then all the buses leave and there is not a lot happening in Waukegan when those buses are gone until the top of the hour when they all come back. So now we've pulled into downtown, everybody stands up, we file out of the bus and these two guys, they follow me and I walk to the bus that I need to get on. The guy with the cars taps me, say, hey brother, let me, let me get another chance, come on. I'm, I'm angry, I'm sad because my watch is gone, I'm confused, but then I wanna catch this bus and I still, I'm wondering, is there any chance that I can win my watch back and still make this bus? But I'm beginning to feel this guy's demeanor change. He's starting to get impatient with me. And we take the game out onto the sidewalk. And he stoops down and he's got the cards down on the sidewalk on top of this magazine. He says, all right, all right. We got to do it for real this time. I'm putting up all I got. You put up all you got. You got the radio. All right, here we go. Shuffle the cards. Boom, boom, boom. I said, no. No, I am not putting up the radio. I just want my watch back. And I'm feeling pained inside because now I'm thinking, how can people do this? You know, he's got to have a heart somewhere. And I said, look, what would I have to put up just to get my watch back? But he's starting to get a bit forceful now. No, man, I ain't playing for that watch. I want the radio. No, I'm not putting up the radio. All right, here we go. And he shuffles the cards again. And he says, all right, where's the Red Queen? I said, no, I am not putting up the radio. And his gesture is like, he's tired of fucking with me. I said, look, I just want my watch back. 
All right, dead man, $20. You got $20? I said, yeah, I got $20. All right, I put up the $20, and I'm trying to pay attention to the bus that I need to catch because, you know, if I miss my bus, I got to wait an hour for another bus. All right, put up the $20. He shuffles the cards, boom, boom, boom. I point, black card, God damn. He's got the $20. Said, all right, man, this one's for the radio. And I hear bus that I need close its doors and start to roll off. And I think real fast, I need to be done with this and get on this bus, just give up the watch. But he's shuffling the cards. He's talking about you put up all you got because I'm putting up all I got. The bald guy is talking about us putting our money together. And maybe I can get my watch back, but I'm going to have to miss this bus. And, well, I could find something to do over the next hour if I do miss the bus. But maybe I'll have my watch back. Ah, Before the bus can get too far away, I pound the side of it. It stops. The doors pop open. I rush in the doors, pay my fare, and sit down. As the bus rolled away, I could see those two guys through the bus window. They were walking back the opposite way. And for the whole 45-minute ride out to the mall, I was kicking myself. This was something I never should have gotten involved with. I've lost this watch that I had for less than a week. I can't even tell anybody about how stupid I was and what happened. I'd never live it down. But at least they did not get my boom box. I was not that stupid. A few months later, news is beginning to circulate about a nine-year-old girl that's missing. And one afternoon, I'm sitting in the living room doing my homework. I look up at the TV and immediately I recognize the face of the guy from the bus. So I go turn up the volume on the TV and the announcer's saying, Alton Coleman, 28 years old, is wanted for questioning in the disappearance of a nine-year-old girl. And he had befriended a guy that previous day, stayed the night at the guy's house. The guy loaned Alton Coleman his car and he's never been seen again. And I recognized him. That's the guy from the bus. And a few days later, Alton Coleman was sighted. Alton Coleman molested two girls, killed one of them, stomped one of them to death and the other one got away and now he's got an accomplice this woman named deborah brown as i learned more about alvin coleman up to the time that i had met him he had already been on trial for rapes that he was acquitted of but he had done some prison time for rapes and while he was in prison, he raped three men. So up to that moment in 83, with that three-card money, he had raped nine people between the ages of 14 and 22. But now he was on the news daily. He and Deborah Brown 
and they were going around Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, killing, raping, car theft, kidnapping. And every time there was a new story, I would think about my interaction and how he got close to all these people. One situation was in Ohio where he and Deborah Brown pulled up on bicycles to ask the Walters couple about a camper that they were selling. Alton and Deborah sat with them for hours talking and laughing. The Walters couple in their 40s, they made coffee, they drank coffee together. And when Mr. Walters went in the house and upstairs to go find the title for the camper, that's when Alton Coleman bludgeoned Mrs. Walters, hit her 25 times with a wooden candlestick. And when Mr. Walters came back, they stabbed him and beat him with the candlestick and left him for dead. He survived, but he's got permanent brain damage. There was an elderly couple in their 70s. The husband was a reverend. Deborah and Alton went to church with this couple. The couple gave them a ride somewhere and Deborah and Alton went off into Kentucky where they beat the hell out of somebody, stole his car and came back to this reverend's home. But the reverend recognized him at this point and he says, why are you doing this to us? And Alton says, all right, we usually kill them wherever we go but we're not gonna kill you. But Alton and Deborah did tie them up and pistol whipped them and stole a car. And then they went through Indiana, killed a college professor, stole his car. And Deborah and Alton were eventually arrested in a park in Evanston, Illinois on the 20th of July, 1984. And that was the end of a really weird time of Everybody in the Midwest just watching this. We didn't know where Alton and Deborah were going, what they were doing. Everybody was on guard. So Alton Coleman was executed by the state of Ohio in April of 2002. And Deborah Brown is in prison in Indiana, life without the possibility of parole. And today I'll look at comments under documentaries and stories about Alton Coleman. And people will say, how could so many people be so stupid? There was a detective in one documentary about Alton Coleman, and she says that he had a charm about him. He could be likable. And that is a scary kind of a criminal. They don't just jump out of the bushes. They don't come out and say, hey, I'm gonna kill you, get ready. No. They say, hey, I ain't seen you in a long time. Or they ride up on a bicycle and have coffee with you for hours. They know how to get your guard to come down. In response to this question about how can so many people be so stupid, I say, there but for the grace of God go I.
is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Tom Waits behind me now. And we just heard from Oz de Soleil, who you can find on YouTube at Excel on Fire. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Well, folks, if you have any friends or family members who have never heard Risk before, recommend these best of Risk episodes to them. This is the best way to get to know what the show is all about. This is the 23rd, and in a couple of weeks, we'll have the 24th best of risk episode you can also find them on our website at risk-show.com slash best of risk also on our website are you know information about our live shows or how to submit pitches to us our shop is there and on the listen pages are the tables of contents of every episode There's even a search function where you can search by keywords for stories you might be trying to find. All of that is at risk-show.com. You should also look for us on our social media. We are at Risk Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On Facebook, you can also find the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group, where you can talk about stories with other fans of the show. There's also a subreddit for that, at Risk Podcast. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at the Kevin Allison. You can find me also at Cameo. You can, you know, hire me to make a little video message for a friend or family member, or for yourself, at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison and you can hire me personally for one-on-one training around storytelling or just creative life advice in general you can find me at kevinallison.com folks today is the day take a risk the hell are you? Ooh, wow. Who the hell are you? I don't think he's talking to me because I don't recognize him. He's got to be talking to somebody behind me. So I turn and look 
there's this huge bald guy. And he looks down at me. You talking to you, brother? What was your name again? Oh, man, how do I forget that? Oh, man, you're going to college. That's good. That's good. Maybe he sucks at this. Okay, well, I'm glad I didn't say, who the hell are you? Ooh, wow. Who the hell are you? Ooh, wow. Who the hell are you? Ooh, wow. Who the hell are you? It's your boxer balls now. I said eat it.